The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. We can see that illuminated sign that marks the end of the journey. This vaccine will help us get past this pandemic once and for all. We need people to have faith that this vaccine is safe and that they should take it. The thing that's going to stop us from seeing the end of this pandemic are people going, oh, I'm not so sure. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Roger Hearing. And good afternoon, I'm Caroline Hepker. Well, the last day of campaigning in the Batley and Spen by-election as much of the nation remains transfixed by last night's remarkable victory of England in the Euro 2020 game against Germany. And both events are likely to hang heavy on the politics of the nation. The last time England beat Germany at Wembley in the 1966 World Cup final, it was said to have helped carry Harold Wilson's Labour Party to victory in the general election of that year. So, could England's football progress give Boris another bounce and maybe bury some of the bad news in the wake of the Matt Hancock affair? Well, the first test of that, of course, will be tomorrow uh, at Batley where Labour is struggling to hold on in a red wall seat that has been safe for them for four decades. Could a Labour loss here compound the view that Keir Starmer is failing to cut through as a leader? Could he face a challenge? Well, joining us now, I'm very pleased to say, is Tamanjit Singh Desi, who's the Labour MP for Slough and indeed the Shadow Rail Minister as well. Tamanjit, thanks so much for being with us today. A warm welcome to the programme. Uh, Let me ask you, first of all, uh, tomorrow's by-election is pretty important for Labour. Give us a sense of of how important it will be. Uh, Roger, thank you, first of all, for having me on. It's great to be on um, Bloomberg Radio this wonderful morning after England have created history. First time, as you just said, after 55 years that we managed to beat Germany in a major tournament. And now we're in the quarterfinals of uh, Euro uh, 2020. Uh, in terms of uh, Batley and Spen, um, having been there on several occasions and having campaigned with our amazing uh, candidate, Kim, uh, I know that she would be a fantastic MP. In fact, she's the only local candidate out of all of the dozen-plus candidates that are standing, and she has lived in Batley and Spen all of her life. In terms of Batley and Spen as a constituency, that has always been a very marginal uh, constituency. So we know that we are in a tough, tough fight. We always have been uh, in a tough fight. And we, but we managed to win that at the last general election uh, by just over 3,000 votes, I believe. Uh, but now uh, we know that uh, we've got our work cut out. But what, what has pained me immensely, uh, Roger, is that uh, during the campaigning, it has been very, very divisive. There's been a toxic atmosphere by individuals uh, who have been trying to stoke up community tensions. And you will know that Kim's late great sister, Jo Cox, she, her life was tragically taken by uh, a, a far-right uh, individual. And, and that's uh, what is is happening, unfortunately, in Batley and Spen. And that's what we're battling against. And Labour is trying to give that message, a united message, 
Uh, and Kim has been saying again and again that she will work for all sections of, of her diverse community. Mm-hmm. But there are some who want to divide up the electorate uh, to their nefarious ends. Yeah, it has been um, a very difficult campaign, hasn't it? But I put this question to you. um, What happens if Labour loses here a seat that you have um, held since 1983? And and despite, you know, Kim's qualities, perhaps, what happens if she doesn't take it? Well, uh, Caroline, uh, I don't really want to get into hypotheticals. We uh, have been positive throughout and we will continue to be positive Tomorrow is the main day, and my request to all Batlians then, uh, very, very good people, is that please, please choose your local candidate. She will be an amazing, strong voice for you uh, in comparison to some of the others who have, who have never done anything for Batlians Ben. I mean, most of them haven't even been to Batlians Ben. Uh, and I had the pleasure of going there on four occasions, and it's a wonderful place, but I had never been there before. So please, please choose wisely, and please choose somebody uh, who will be the epitome of more in common. Let me ask you then about the, the religious issue, which you almost touched on just now, or at least perhaps we're alluding to. There are a large number of Muslim constituents in Batley and Spen, and you famously, of course, called out the Prime Minister on Islamophobia uh, in Parliament. Yep. Many Muslims in Batley and Spen, it seems, feel taken for granted by Labour, perhaps questioning the party's attitude to them. That's a big part of the problem at the moment, isn't it? Well, look, we uh, need to demonstrate that we cannot take anybody for granted. And we also need to highlight to them that we have never taken them for granted uh, any part of our electorate. You know, whether it's the, the hardworking uh, individuals who are just about making ends meet, whether it is our diverse communities. And in terms of the Muslim community, it, it, it is, let us not forget, it is a Labour Party that actually pushed to have the official recognition of Palestine. It has always fought for human rights uh, and it has always stood up for diverse communities. As you rightly pointed out, Roger, uh, we've got a prime minister who describes Muslim women as looking like bank robbers and letterboxes. And that is why the likes of me had to call him out. And, uh, you know, th- this is symptomatic of, of of a wider malaise within politics. So the people, the good people of Batley and Spent need to just be very, very mindful of if they end up voting for a divisive figure like George Galloway or some of the others, then all they will do, they will let in a Tory MP. And that is uh, not uh, good either for the Labour Party, and it's definitely not good uh, for the people of Batley and Spent. Is Keir Starmer doing a good enough job, though? Look, Keir is uh, an, an excellent individual who is trying uh, his level best for not just for our party, but for our country. He is a very articulate individual, he's a safe pair of hands. And if you juxtapose him next to the prime minister, who at times is completely out of his, his depth, in, in terms of a bumbling figure, mistake after mistake. I asked him recently about the farmers' protest in India, and he started talking about Pakistan. Uh, and that's just why it, it is, he is often an embarrassment for the nation. And if we uh, put Keir Starmer uh, opposite him, somebody who has served as the director of public uh, prosecutions uh, for five years, uh, a barrister, a QC, the the way that he delves into the details of the matters, he would make an excellent prime minister. But it it is up to uh, us as the Labour Party to make sure that we get our uh, innovative and radical message out there so that people end up voting Labour and and we have that Labour government that millions are desperate for.
Let me ask you about, about something else. In the last by-election, which was Chesham and Amersham, where Labour didn't do well at all, but we won't go into that, a lot of the attention was focused on HS2, the, the high-speed rail project. Now, your shadow rail minister, is HS2 necessary? Is it even desirable? Look, HS2 is a project that was conceived by the last Labour government. Uh, we, as a, as a Labour party, are firmly behind major infrastructure projects, in particular rail infrastructure projects such as HS2, Northern Powerhouse Rail, or the Trans-Pennine Upgrades, uh, and the Western Rail Link to Heathrow, which would benefit Mysloud constituents. These infrastructure schemes are very, very important, Roger, because they are the ones that will make sure that we have that mass transit rail system. In order to decarbonise our economy, in order to make sure that we're moving into the 21st century and getting people off-road and onto rail, if we do not invest in that infrastructure, then we will be sorry in the long term. And in term, But in terms of HS2, there's two or three things that I'm really very, very concerned about. Firstly, is the government's inability to keep uh, a, a close eye on the cost, the ballooning cost. And the Conservatives are notoriously bad at managing major public contracts. So that's the first thing uh, that uh, we uh, will be uh, very, very hawkish on. Secondly, is in terms of the uh, mitigation uh, for environmental damage. Uh, and, we, and we will be holding the government's feet to the fire in terms of the rewilding and the reforesting of certain areas uh, along that route. And thirdly, it's very, very important that we have that public consultation. The government has promised that along the route, wherever communities are detrimentally impacted, that we listen to them and that we have a, a route which uh, is uh, w wherein we build a consensus. So that, that sort of thing is very important, uh, that we listen to those communities. Uh, but uh, overall, I think that uh, we need to have uh, more uh, investment within our rail infrastructure. OK, this is a difficult message, though, isn't it, from the Labour Party? Largely, we agree with what the government is doing. We just have a few conditions that we want to place on essentially the direction of travel. I mean, this also seems to come across when it comes to COVID policy. Um, do you think, what do you make of the government holding the line on the 19th of July? Is it the right date, in your view, to reopen the economy? Labour's been largely supportive of, of lockdowns and the government moves on COVID. Well, Karen, it's the job of the likes of ourselves to hold this inept, incompetent government to account. And, and, and I have been doing that very, very forthrightly in the chamber as and when required. But we also have uh, continuously taken the attitude that in a pandemic, in, uh, in any measure, in fact, that if we feel that the government is doing the right thing, then we ought to be supportive of that. It's not just opposition for opposition's sake. In terms that that's uh, you know I hope that uh, clarifies the, the issues around HS2 and other rail infrastructure projects, mm. but in terms of the date of 19th of July, uh, we want to have a reopening of our economy. But what we uh, have consistently been saying, uh, and Kier and Angela have been saying that uh, in terms of the leadership as well, that we should be focused on the data, not dates. We need to listen to the experts. I know that there are some like the Prime Minister who. Uh, will have famously said uh, uh, F experts, and uh, and uh, uh, that is not a, a an outlook of life that we share. We uh, need to be listening to those scientists and the medical experts, and uh, if uh, uh, the situation allows, then we should be having that reopening of the economy at, at the earliest possible opportunity.
But let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics. Thousands of European children living here may become undocumented this week. It's because applications to the EU settlement scheme haven't been made on their behalf. According to various children's charities, some applications have been caught in a growing backlog of cases ahead of the June the 30th deadline. It could add to the anguish of children in the care system who may grow up to discover additional barriers to entering employment or even starting a tenancy. Scotland has passed a new law making civil partnerships available for mixed-sex couples after calls for changes from campaigners. The Scottish Parliament passed a new law that comes into force today, extending the eligibility criteria beyond same-sex couples. And working women have suffered again as a wave of COVID infections has emptied classrooms. Figures released on Tuesday showed a total of 375,000 pupils in state-funded schools were absent for a COVID-related reason on June the 24th. That equates to 5.1% of pupils. The scale of the issue has prompted the government to look into mandatory testing instead of self-isolation when schools return after the summer holidays. Women bore the brunt of childcare during lockdowns in Britain, with mothers' working hours falling four times as sharply as men's. Well, we may talk about that story in a moment. But first, the government has announced its post-Brexit system for overseeing subsidies to companies promising swifter action and less red tape than when the UK was part of the EU. Subsidies will be permitted if they follow certain principles like benefiting local communities and being good value for taxpayers. A new subsidies advice unit would be set up within the Competition and Markets Authority. Well, joining us now is Bloomberg Opinion columnist Therese Raphael to discuss this issue of state aid today. Firstly, Therese, this was perhaps one of the thorniest issues in the Brexit trade agreement with the EU. Is this going to be you know, cause for friction in future? Well, yes. I mean, if we cast our mind back to those sort of fraught final days uh, before the agreement was finally signed, uh, subsidies were a huge issue. The EU suspected that uh, that Boris Johnson would seek to you know, use a freedom to subsidize industry uh, to uh, create an unlevel, play, you know, an unbalanced playing field. The TCA requires the UK to adhere to certain principles. So the new uh, subsidy regime has to do it. It means that the subsidy, uh, it has to lead to new and bigger projects. It shouldn't be required to generate um, additional activity for the business, and it has to be regulated by the independent body. So the new UK bill will do all of that, um, and I think the, the European Union will take some comfort for the in the fact that the competition's market authority will be overseeing it. Um, you know, however, I, I think they're going to uh, watch it warily, let's just say, because the political imperative for Boris Johnson will be to show that this new freedom is a real dividend of Brexit, mm. that he's delivered something that Britain couldn't do within the EU. So there will be, uh, I think, an, you know, an impetus to kind of push the boundaries there. Uh, and, and, and there's a lot of uncertainty how the courts will interpret their role. Uh, I mean, the EU subsidy regime is... Uh, is, is very well, kind of a well-oiled machine. You have the EU pre-approved subsidies. There's a template. This is all going to be, um, uh, you know, uh, this is all going to be new and it needs to be tested. So I'd say a lot is in the implementation. And, you know, let's not forget that this is a government that is being, is having to defend itself against charges of cronyism, including in a number of court cases. So, 
I think an area that the opposition will watch, as well as the EU, is whether uh, the process in which subsidies are approved is fair and totally independent and transparent. Yeah, I mean, agility and flexibility were the key watchwords Kwasi Kwarteng uh, was putting out there when he was talking about it. But I suppose one of the issues, I mean, it's even wider than the relationship with the EU in a way. Any form of state subsidy can be rolled into potential trade disputes, as we saw, of course, between the US and and Europe in terms of uh, Airbus and Boeing. Yes, exactly. And the problem here is that the UK government could approve a subsidy. It could then subsequently be challenged and businesses might uh, be faced with uh, added uncertainty. Do they pay back the subsidy? And that could drag on. And when that happens, uh, either the whole sort of the whole framework gets thrown up in the air. So, you know, again, it's, it's, it's I think, a good news that we finally have a subsidy bill. It, it uh, will eliminate some of the uncertainty that has existed since the TCA was signed. However, it's all about the implementation, how it's, uh, you know, how it's put in place, and I think early test cases of where it will be used. Mm, interesting. So that on the state aid issue. Uh, Therese, what about schools? I think this is a, going to become a growing issue now for the government because, of course, there were these figures out that 375,000 pupils were not in state schools on the 24th of June because they were having to self-isolate. The government has not cracked this one. Yeah, that's just an astounding number when you consider how many people have been vaccinated, including, you know, obviously teachers and and parents. And what that means is is not just that children are out of school or learning remotely, which we know is, is, you know, not equal to being in class, but obviously parents having to miss work, staying home to look after them. And, um, and and, you know, that's a problem for the economy more broadly. Um, yeah, it's interesting, I, I was looking at Israel uh, over the last couple of days because, mm-hmm. um, you know, the thinking there is that they've pretty much got herd immunity. However, uh, the Delta variant has proved uh, a, a problem, and particularly among young people, and now there's a push to vaccinate uh, adolescents between, I think, the ages of 12 and 17. That's how the Israelis plan to deal with that. They don't want more restrictions. They don't want to send kids home from school. And I think we might see the U.K. Uh, looking to other examples like that. It, it, you know, it's it's pretty likely we're going to see more cases in the autumn and in the winter. They can't simply just shut down whole classes as they've done last year. I think the cost in terms of lost education, and that just compounds through the livelihood of children, particularly in disadvantaged areas, as we've seen. So they're going to have to find another way around that. Um, And, uh, you know, maybe vaccinations, it may just be different rules to keep the kids in school. But um, you're right, the government hasn't cracked it. It's, It's a growing uh, problem, or at least it, it will be in September, and they need to ha- lay down a new set of guidelines. Yeah, all of which, of course, is probably going to require more spending by the government, and that is already a vexed issue, as we know. Now, it's very interesting. We now have a former chancellor in the role of the health secretary who knows about the spending issues of this, as well as Rishi Sunak. A lot of criticism, of course, of Boris Johnson for announcing all kinds of spending without necessarily talking to his next-door neighbour about it. One of the things it seems to be focusing on, I know you're writing about this at the moment, uh, Therese, is the pensions triple lock, a sort of core part of the Tory commitment as an early stage, the idea of keeping pensions ahead of a number of indicators. Um, 
and obviously a lot of Tory voters, I suppose, are pensioners, so it still matters. But this is going to be a vexed issue when it comes to paying the bills, isn't it? Yeah, this is going to be a hugely interesting issue uh, because you know, we, we have a prime minister who believes very strongly that he can spend his way uh, you know, out of the pandemic into recovery and deliver on his promises. And we have a chancellor who wants to show fiscal responsibility, who wants to show the markets that they, they are capable of restraint. We've seen Boris Johnson backing down on a couple of issues, the uh, foreign aid, uh, the catch-up uh, um, budget for schools. Pensions is a huge one, and there's a, a particular reason for that, and that is that the triple lock, which uh, guarantees that pensions rise the highest of uh, either inflation, 2.5%, or, um, or earnings increases, has ensured that there's a very sharp increase in pensions now because wages have risen so much from the low base in the pandemic. Now, this is anomalous. It's base effects uh, um, and what we also call composition effects, which is you know, lower wage people dropping out of the workforce, increasing the, uh, the, the, the apparent wage hike. But it's a problem for the Treasury, which would, might have to find an additional $4 billion or so, um, and it takes away from spending on other issues. And yet, as you say, Boris Johnson has, uh, you know, his political instincts are rarely wrong, and he's rightly sus that many Tory voters will not want to see that pledge abandoned. Um, mm. I think there is a way through here, and that's probably in tweaking the formula somehow. It's hard to see how Johnson can avoid that, and there's certainly a good reason to do that. But it really opens up these broader questions of how are they approaching the recovery. He's got commitments on net zero. He's got commitments on social care. Uh, even just tweaking the pensions triple lock is not going to liber- liberate enough uh, spend a budget to, to cover all of those things. So I think that's the battle we're going to see play out. And um, Roger, you mentioned uh, Sajid Javid, and he was a fiscal conservative as chancellor, but now he's wearing a different hat, and I would expect him to advocate pretty hard for healthcare spending. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.